On February 2nd, 2011, 18-year-old Moises Mraz Espinosa got into a fight with his mother. He put on music by the band King Diamond, grabbed a cord, and strangled her. He then dismembered her body in the shower, cutting her into hundreds of pieces, removing her fingers and toes, putting the pieces into a freezer in the living room, and peeled the skin off of her skull, into which he carved upside-down crosses and carried around in a backpack for the next two days. He then confessed to his cousin what he had done and turned himself into the authorities. Two years later, he was put on trial for murder, and that's where I come in. I'm stand-up comedian Matt Walker, and I was on the jury for the trial. This is the story of the murder of Amelia Espinoza as told by me, juror number eight. Welcome back to the Juror Number 8 podcast. My name is Matt Walker, and with me is my good friend, Stephen Glickman. Hi. Together, he and I host a podcast called The Nighttime Show, where we interview celebrities and do all kinds of fun stuff because we're both comedians. But on this podcast, we talk all about the grisly murder trial that I was a juror on, the murder trial of Moises Moraz Espinoza. Where we left off on the last episode was uh, we'd just seen the beginnings of the trial the uh, first witness had been called, and they were now calling detectives who had been on the scene to basically, once he had turned himself in at the sheriff's office, then they went out and looked at the crime scene and, and saw what was there. Okay. Uh, b- before we start, uh, mm-hmm. if anybody is eating dinner, <laughs> uh, if I can just say, stop, uh, stop eating dinner, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, uh, because this this thing is absolutely terrifying. Yes. Uh, it really is. Horrific. I've never heard anything like this in my yeah. life. I'm just happy it happened to you and not to me. <laughs> yes. Okay, so they pull up this detective uh, who is now retired at the at this point. Like he'd been a retired detective. Like he was active when he turned himself in, but he'd retired since then. Okay. I don't know if he retired cuz of this case, but who knows. But, I would. But he talked about going into this apartment where this murder had taken place and what they walked in and saw. And they walked in and they saw a freezer on the floor of the living room. There was blood all over. Uh, the shower was stained with blood. And there was like plastic tarps down. And there was like a rotary saw that was laying there. Then they opened the freezer. And it was full of human body parts. How big a freezer are we talking about? Like a full-size freezer. A full-size freezer? Yeah. Like a... And it was unplugged laying on its back in the living room oh this is not good like so i imagine the smell was just horrible i think if you ever see a freezer and it's laying on its back with the door facing up and it's unplugged and blood all over and there's blood on it you just turn around and leave (laughs) most most people would yeah but this is a detective they're investigating a murder you've been told about so uh so they open it up and then here's the point at this point They've got uh, a projector. We're seeing photos of everything. Oh, so no. we see photos of like the door and then the living room and no. of the freezer and like the blood everywhere and then in the shower and the rotary tool. And then... And there being blood everywhere. You mean blood like is, is all over the walls. All over the, the floor. The and floor and just, the yeah, walls. And, yeah. Oh, it's messy when you yeah. do that kind of thing. So, okay. And then we start seeing photos of like close-up stuff. Right. So like it's like, oh, this is a part of a leg that we're looking at here, this photo, because like what they do is like each of the pieces, I guess, becomes like a separate piece of evidence. Oh, my God. So they have to catalog all of these body parts oh my as God. part of it. What happened? Where, where do they put these body parts? 
I don't know. I imagine they eventually wind up getting cremated, but at at this point, they're probably all in a freezer at this point. Like, oh. I don't think they just, I don't think they get rid of them until after the trial. So this they're just like rough in a frozen locker somewhere, probably all these body parts. Yeah. And evidence. I mean, they might be able to get rid of the body once they've cataloged everything. I don't know if they do that. Why am I doing this show with you? Why isn't Mike Miratori <laughs> doing the show with you? Mike Miratori loves this type of stuff. Yes, well. This is nightmare inducing. You're more indicative of the normal person in America, I think. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we start seeing photos of these things while they're talking about it. That's and horrifying. The most disturbing thing that I've ever seen. Uh, I'll, I'll get to that last, right? First, oh, they show Jesus. us he had a backpack that was there with her skull in it where he peeled all the skin off of her skull. So it's just the human skull with no, no more skin on it. And he carved upside down crosses into it, into the skull, into the skull. Oh. And they were saying, this is part of the reason that they know it was a satanic ritual, blah, blah, blah. They kept playing up the satanic ritual part while he was in prison awaiting trial. He'd gotten a tattoo of an upside down cross on his neck. And the thing is, that's also the logo of the band King Diamond who it's sort of like a Satanist band, I guess, King Diamond. I've heard, like, at this point, I'd heard of King Diamond. I knew who he was. He used to be the lead singer of a band called The Merciful Fate, right, okay. back in the 80s, like this big heavy metal band. It wasn't the genre, like, I like heavy metal, but I wasn't, like, a huge fan of that particular band. So, like, I'd heard of them, but I was not familiar with their particular music. Right. But I was like, okay, so that's the logo for the band. They kept showing us all this stuff like this is satanic symbol, upside down cross, King Diamond is a Satanist, he's an avowed Satanist, this is the whole thing. Then they showed how they found a copy of the satanic Bible there. Um, they highlighted some passages from the satanic Bible and they talked about that. And we'll talk about it in a little bit when they had the satanic expert come in. Right. Um, but so they show us photos of these things like photos of a human skull that was empty, which like, you know, you see at a museum when it's like something they dug up, but this is like a human being like two days was before. There like, was it a bloody skull or was it just like a... There was blood on it, yeah. yeah. I mean, because you don't like, you can't get it all off. Muscle and stuff in the face still? Or no, not like the skull was pretty well, pretty well clean. Um, Holy crap. And then the worst thing I've ever seen in my entire life, this, I will never forget seeing this. Like I could probably, if I knew how to draw, I could draw it because like it's etched into my mind. Okay. They showed us a photo of the bottom section of her torso, right? So it's like the, think from upper thigh up until probably just above the hip bone. That was a section of body that was there. They just a section by itself. Like like if you were to take a human body and separate it and put it into things you could put together back as Legos or whatever, this is like the little hip section of it, right? So he'd made that section uh, where he cut that apart and then he removed her genitalia. What? Like, not just externally, but, like, all the way in. So, like, cut in eight inches and removed everything in that part of her body. So, Holy there was just, like, a shit. big gaping hole there. It was... Matt, this is fucking... Was horrible. This is horrifying. It was awful. It's the most It's the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. It's the most awful thing I've ever seen. Can, can you sue the... the, the <laughs> For making me look at it? Making you see this? No, I mean, well, they did tell us this is, the, I mean, the judge said up front, this is one of those graphic, disturbing cases I've ever had to preside over, and you're going to see some horrible things. And I know that part of the stuff that we didn't get to see as members of the jury was the fight over what photos they got to show us from the crime scene. Oh, my um, were God. Like, because they, they had thousands of photos that they take at a crime scene like that, right? So they got to show us like 20 of them, right? 
But I imagine that's probably the worst. I think we probably got shown the worst photos. That's what the prosecution probably fought to show us. Dude, that is fucking horrifying. Yeah. I, I don't use language like that uh, very often when it comes to things like this, but this is, this is, I mean, this is brutal, man. It was awful. How yeah. do you, like, how did you even emotionally deal with this? You get, I got into a state where I was just like, I'm doing my duty as a citizen of the United States. Like I'm required to go to jury duty every once in a while. You get the notice and you're like, oh, this is annoying, you know, but here's the thing. Like you, in put this country, your, you put your mind in a place of like, I this is am, a job. this is a job. I'm doing mm-hmm. a thing. If I wasn't doing it, someone else would be made to do. Yes. This. And also as Americans, we always bitch about jury decisions, right? We're always bitching about like, oh, how could this person have gotten off? How could they have gotten off? Clearly the person's guilty. Like we see this stuff on TV, right? This is a chance um, to make a real difference. But here's the thing is like, if smart people and intelligent people who take the process seriously are always trying to get out of it. Like people are always saying, I always see on Facebook, people are like, Oh, I got jury duty. I want to get out of it. What, what should I say? And I'm always thinking, don't because if we're always trying to get out of it, then who's left over on the jurors? Just people who just like sit at home watching Maury Povich all night. Well, that's me. I sit at home watching Maury Povich. But, yeah, but you know, you get people who are like not working and don't take it seriously. There's a lot of idiots living yeah. in this, in this country. In this country yeah. yeah. So it's like, you know, don't try to get out of jury dude do do your best go take it seriously do your job and this this entire process i'm on this gruesome horrible murder case it took like nine days of my life that was it right wow. so it's not that bad it's not like i was away for months and months and sequestered all that kind of stuff right yeah i just got emotionally into a state where i was like all right well once the first photo came up and you saw all the blood and i was like i just sort of took a breath and said to myself like this is gonna be bad You've seen horrible things online. You've seen horrible things already. Just know that this is something that you have to look at. Let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Other people that were on the jury mm-hmm. near you, did yeah. anybody throw up? No. Did anybody like freak out or pass out or have any no sort of- No freaking out, no passing out, but you could tell it affected all of us. Like, you know, I wasn't there like looking around at their faces when these pictures came up because I was trying to take it very seriously, but yeah. it was bad. Yeah, it was not something that any of us would ever have wanted to see and would ever want to see again. You know, like I remember as a kid going to, I was, I don't know, like 11 or 12 and we took a vacation to back east and we went to Boston, we went to Rhode Island. I got my parents to take me to Fall River where Lizzie Borden had killed her parents Uh with an axe. And I remember at the Fall River Historical Society, they had like a bloody sheet left over from this murder from, you know, the 1890s. And as a kid, I thought, you know, that's kind of cool. But now with this case, I would not want to see anything from that crime scene. Like, I I know too much about it now. Like, I've seen too much where yeah, that yeah. it would disturb me a lot more seeing something from well, this it's, case. But it sounds to me like it's like one thing, like one piece of evidence from this trial would be... <laughs> would be enough the, for you. <laughs> the marquee horror piece in mm-hmm. a horror film. Oh, yeah. Like one one piece this would have been enough. Enough for the movie Saw. You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah, this yeah, yeah. Is, like the movie Saw had like one horrible yeah. thing. Like and this was this like is dozens like and dozens. Dozens and dozens of horrible things. Yeah. I mean, this is crazy, man. Yeah. Oh, so God. we see all the graphic stuff at that point, right? And that's sort of where we're like, oh, wow, this is bad. And then the defense, like when they come up and they interview these people, they would ask questions about things like, when somebody removes the skin from a skull, like, does that take expertise? 
can anybody just do that? Like that was sort of what they were asking was things like that about like, I think trying to plant a seed in our mind that, hey, this is just some guy. How's he going to remove all the flesh and skin from a skull by himself? He doesn't know how to do that. He's just some kid from, you know, South LA. How's he going to be able to do that? Sure. Google. (laughs) I don't think he can Google that, but yeah. So we go through that process and we see a lot of bad stuff. And then there's other people who come up. They bring his father to the stand. And his father, who was not married to his mother at the time, they'd been divorced, um, but his father would like pick his mother up in the morning and take her to work. So they were still on good terms. They were sort of in a relationship, but not really a thing. It was like an interesting family dynamic where they were in contact. They spent a lot of time together, but they were not a couple and he did not live there. And his father had had been gone for much of his life. Like he'd been in Mexico while he was, uh, Moises was living here in America with his mother. His father went back to Mexico for much of his life and he'd returned a couple years previous to this. They had a relationship and the father would like take his mother to work in the morning a lot of times. And I think even this morning his father was supposed to take her to work and she didn't come down. So then he went about his day. And his dad was sitting in the courtroom most of this time on his son's side. You have got to be kidding me. No. But I mean, if you think about it, this is his only child. As a as a parent, I imagine there's probably some rationalization that goes on in your head where you're thinking he can. I don't care what the evidence says; he couldn't have done this. I think that's probably what goes on in your head. It's got. I don't be. know. Yeah. You know, nobody wants to believe that their child could do something like this. Yeah. Yeah. So it goes through. They talk about him confessing. We don't hear anything about what went on once he confessed. Like once he walked into the room at the sheriff's office and said, "I killed my mother." We didn't hear anything else about whatever he said in his statements. We know that he was interviewed, but we didn't hear anything about what went on in the interview. And I suspect that the defense was able to get that thrown out. Now, I don't know anything. I don't know all the transcripts of the trial, what happened before I was there, because I only saw as a juror what I'm allowed to see. But I am willing to bet that the defense got that thrown out for probably some kind of reasons where they didn't Mirandize him properly or they didn't do something according to the book. But really, it didn't matter at that point. Like, it, it wasn't going to make any difference whether we saw the interview or just heard the detective talk about what he was told. I don't think it really made much of a difference. So they had him locked up. We go through all that stuff. And then they come to the part where they're like, hey, we've got this satanic expert who's going to explain to you why this date was significant, why this was part of a satanic ritual, and how all that happened. So they bring out this uh, uh, woman who they'd flown in from Philadelphia. And actually, this was like on a, on the next day, like we'd finished up with one day and they're like, okay, tomorrow we're, we're waiting on our expert. Her flight was delayed because of weather problems, or whatever. So she's going to be here tomorrow. And they bring in this satanic expert from Philadelphia, right? And she starts talking about how uh, the music that he was listening to was satanic, right? And uh, before this, I, I don't know if it was before or after her, but they had a forensic expert who showed us the contents of this guy's hard drive, right? And it was all these like Google searches on satanic rituals, Google searches on Satanism. Um, I remember his cousin, when she was testifying, talked about how he'd gotten into satanic stuff a little bit, like it was something that he was sort of interested in. Um, but it didn't strike me as anything more than stuff that like every goth kid you know goes through, right? Sure. I mean, yeah. how many people do we know that were like emo and goths in high school and probably were like, oh, I'm going to check out the Satanic Bible. That sounds pretty cool, right? Yeah, of course. You know, yeah. and they had the book there. 
So they, they bring this guy, and on the contents of the hard drive, I remember this, they're like, oh, here are the images we found of album covers on his hard drive. They have disturbing satanic imagery. And I'm seeing all these metal album covers come up, and I'm just like, got it, got it, got it, got it. Because I like heavy metal, right? right so of course, they're like, yeah. oh, here's an album from Cannibal Corpse called Dismembered and Molested. I'm like, oh, I have that album. That album's pretty good. <laughs> you know? like, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, I can't say anything about that. But right, of you know, I, I shared a lot of musical taste with this man. Because uh, he liked a lot of heavy metal, and I've, I like heavy metal, so a lot of stuff came up. But it was his big thing was King Diamond. Then you see all the King Diamond albums, and it's like this upside-down cross uh, on everything. And you're like, oh, that's what he carved into the skull. I see it's the King Diamond logo that he carved in there. It's an upside-down cross. It's a satanic symbol, but also it's the King Diamond logo. Got it. So they showed us all the stuff on the hard drive. Then the satanic expert is telling us about Satanism, and she's like, this music is indicative of satanic stuff. And I'm thinking, well, I like that kind of music. I, I don't worship Satan or anything. Yeah. And she starts talking about how the date, February 2nd, is a satanic holiday called Candlemas. And it's halfway between the winter solstice and the spring equinox, which is vernal equinox, I think, right? So it's halfway between those two dates, February 2nd, and that it somehow is a big important date in Satanism, and it's a day where they would commit sacrifices, Right, and she was trying to say that this was probably a human sacrifice, um, and they're like, and here's the the book, here's the Satanic Bible written by Anton Lavey, and here's a passage where they talk about things, and they read like a brief passage, right, and they go through all this stuff about the Satanism. Later on, when we're in the jury room deliberating stuff, I picked up the Bible, Satanic Bible, I start looking through it, and I'm like, oh, this isn't even a religion, like it's no, it's an it's atheist. Not philosophy if anything it's like ayn rand that's what it's like it's like libertarianism is what satanism is to me where i was looking through it i'm like oh it's just oh you should indulge yourself and be selfish yeah. that's literally what he's saying in the book Absolutely. the whole time I mean, it's all this stuff like sacrifice they're not it's not literally saying you should go sacrificing because i looked at the pages that they said that were like it was open to or whatever interesting and i was reading through it and i'm like oh well this has nothing to do with human sacrifice they're just using it for salacious details because they want to make us all think this. But to me, that never played a role in what I like. I don't believe that that played any role in what he did um, and how he did it. I believe that he did it. I, I was part of a jury that convicted him of murder, but I don't believe that the satanic angle, satanic angle was needed. However, there was somebody on the jury who was like a couple people that were like born again Christians or like hardcore Catholics, and they were completely swayed by it. Um, well, it's also like, you know, the thing about it, too, is that like whether or not the book itself, whether or not the Satanic Bible is telling you that you should go and you should mm-hmm. go and do this. If he thinks that if he thinks that's what if it he says. thinks that's what it mm-hmm. says, then he sure. is then then he's acting on it for that reason. Yeah. And people, you know, like, you know, like this in the same way that like people go and stand out and do like the gays or the mm-hmm. devil, like yeah. that kind of those people, they're quoting from something script, scr- scripture yeah. that is not at all completely saying, out of context and, everything. Yeah, completely yeah. Out of context and, and bullshit. Mm-hmm. But that's the way that they feel about yeah. that particular thing. But yeah, so the satanic stuff I never bought into, but there were people in the jury that definitely did. Sure. I, um, I don't think it made it prejudicial in any way. I don't think it made it so that really it would have made any difference because even if that had never been mentioned once, if they'd never said he was satanic, it was a satanic ritual, if this woman from Philadelphia had never testified, right. if none of that had happened, I'm 100% certain the conviction still would have happened because he confessed to a bunch of different people. 
And yeah. there was really no doubt in anyone's mind that he had killed his mother. The only doubt that came in was going to be about whether it was first degree or second degree murder. And uh, I think we'll talk about that in the next episode. Yeah. You can resume eating in an hour, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, take take an hour. Forget about this for a little bit. Go, go watch, watch old reruns of Charles in Charge or something. <laughs> watch the Smurfs, something oh wholesome. God. Yeah, but uh, thank you for listening to the Jura Number 8 podcast. We'll be back uh, and we'll talk about the next phase of the process, which is uh, when the trial wraps up and you get to hear closing arguments and what happened then and then jury deliberations. So thanks for listening.